Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Welcome to the Fick Focus podcast. I'm Ira Jersey, leading this Macro Matters edition. Today with me is Will Hoffman. He's an associate in the U.S. Interest Rate Strategy Group, along with me here at Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, Will, thanks for coming on and uh, co-hosting with me. This is uh, your first time. Thank you very much. Looking forward to it, Ira. And with us today as well is Seth Carpenter. He is the Chief Global Economist at Morgan Stanley. Uh, Seth, thanks very much for coming on FIC Focus. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. So, Let's just start with the big picture. You know, we had a lot of data that's come out. We got information this morning as we record on the 15th of February that Japan is in a recession and we seem to have uh, trends lower in inflation. But we did get this week a higher than expected month on month inflation print in the U.S. So talk a little bit about your view, seeing a lot of this data. How do you see the, the global economy and global markets developing over the next couple of months? Sure. Uh, boy, the data have been coming in fast and furious and at times in, in seemingly contradictory directions. Uh, I guess maybe to start with the U.S., uh, we have this whole hiking cycle for the Fed, been in the uh, soft landing slash no recession camp. And for a while, that was not a particularly popular place to be. And we had people telling us any number of reasons why we were clearly wrong over the course of 2022 and 2023 and how the U.S. Uh, was clearly going into recession because, you know, you'd never seen a hiking cycle before without one. Uh, now that view has, has shifted. And if anything, uh, we're closer to consensus. And up until, as you noted, today's data on retail sales, um, gosh, uh, people were starting to wonder maybe, in fact, the U.S. economy is not just going to have a soft landing. Maybe it's reaccelerating and things would go wrong. Um, so where are we? We, we? we have thought and continue to think that the U.S. economy is strong but decelerating, that we'd get continued softness this year without a crash. Um, the jobs report for January was super strong, but we have seen over the past, call it 18 months to two years, intermittently months where we just get these blowout numbers. And so for now, we're taking it as evidence of a, as a, of a resilient labor market, but not uh, a complete contrast to our underlying view of slowing. Uh, inflation, we do think, is coming down. Uh, the last print ticked up, but we had all already been saying for a long time there'd be some uh, bumpiness to the path of inflation. I, I think the previous couple of months, November, December, had probably exaggerated the downward trend in, in, in inflation, and so we're, we got a little bit of payback there. So we still feel pretty good that inflation's coming down, that the economy is healthy but likely to slow over the course of this year. And as a result, we've got our first rate cut for the Fed penciled in for June. Again, if we go back two weeks or so before the inflation for January and before the labor market report for January, uh, the market was pretty fixated on March. And uh, we were a little bit uncomfortable pushing people off of March, telling them, no, 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 it's, it's June. And, and now, uh, for once, <laughs> we're uh, well aligned with, with market pricing. That's maybe a little bit uncomfortable place to be because it could all go downhill from here. Um, you also brought up Japan, and Japan's quite a, a fascinating story. I was actually in Tokyo uh, for a few days last week. Um, we feel pretty strongly that Japan's turned a corner, made a structural shift from decades of 
zero nominal growth to something stronger. Uh, and so, as you can imagine, the, the data showing a technical recession there feels a little bit uncomfortable. Um, so my guess, though, is, you know, the first half of the year in particular was really strong. Uh, and so we're getting a little bit of, of evening out. Uh, in nominal terms, there was still positive growth in, in the fourth quarter. So uh, I don't think we've completely derailed things. And I think the other point to keep in mind is for the Japanese data in particular, the revisions can be uh, notable. And so uh, we aren't uh, taking, taking that much signal from that technical recession uh, information. Um, I guess the other major economy we could talk about in, in the developed world is in Europe. And there, uh, like the Fed, we think the ECB is gonna start to cut rates in June. Uh, there's probably a bit of a risk that maybe it happened sooner or maybe that first cut in June is not 25 basis points, but instead 50 basis points. And I do think it's all gonna come down to how the inflation data there evolve. Uh, the European economy is much softer than the US economy. Germany is in recession. Uh, and so the, the place where the ECB policymakers just have to be focusing all their attention is what's going on to inflation. Uh, I will say they seem to have focused more, especially last year, on headline inflation than uh, the Fed did, than I would have. And so I think as headline inflation has come down rapidly, and I think core continues to come down over the next couple of months, uh, their, their tune is going to change a little bit from being uh, warning people not to expect too soon of a rate cut to, to then having to embrace it. Thank you so much for that, Seth. Um, a quick question just on your inflation outlook. Uh, given how important uh, inflation has been to the pricing of interest rate cuts in the, the short rate curve. Um, could you talk a bit more about some of the underlying drivers of your outlook for further disinflation, uh, especially after the surprise um, CPI print we saw here just a few days ago, um, which saw, I believe, Supercore tick up materially on a both annualized base, bases. Um, could you talk a little bit, little bit about where you see that disinflation kind of playing out over the next six months to 12 months? Absolutely. So over the near term, I think we can continue to count on uh, a drag down in inflation from consumer goods. So once again, this time around, we saw some negative uh, prints there. We think all of that continues. It's not going to be uniform. We some, we'll get some lumpiness when it comes to cars, especially used cars. Um, but we do think goods inflation is going to be on net negative for the balance of this year. And as a result, that's going to help with the, the disinflationary process. Uh, when it comes to uh, housing, rent inflation, uh, owner's equivalent rent and tenant's rent, we still think that's going to keep trending down. Now, there was a bit of an upside surprise to OER, and the Bureau of Labor Statistics has made an adjustment to the weighting of single-family rentals versus apartment rentals. Nevertheless, uh, over the course of this year, we do think uh, based on available data for new rent contracts and some of the indexes they have for uh, new tenant rent contracts. Uh, we think that's going to keep trending down as well. Uh, the noise in the month-to-month in, in -month data notwithstanding, we think that's going to be a source of disinflation over time. It's the rest of services where I think there's huge amounts of uncertainty and as well a lot of noise. Um, for CPI, though, let's keep in mind that Core for, for core CPI, goods is one third, housing is 40%. So there you're talking about three quarters of the index. And so the residual uh, in core CPI for services excluding housing is, is a smaller component. 
And there are some really interesting stories there. So if we look at some of the insurance categories, those have been quite strong. Uh, it's not clear that those are going to go away in the near term. Um, but, you know, airfares tend to fluctuate a lot month to month. And so I, I wouldn't want to extrapolate too much of the volatility that we saw or too much of the strength that we saw in other services in January. I, I wouldn't want to extrapolate all of that for the rest of time. So two main groups, core goods, housing inflation for the biggest chunk of the disinflation. And then, uh, you know, for the rest of services, uh, I don't think we're going to see quite the same strength we just saw in January. So you mentioned, Seth, that you you think that based on your inflation outlook and the like, that the Federal Reserve will start their uh, their easing cycle in in June. But that's only part of the the tightening that's been going on is the interest rate policy. So turning a little bit to the balance sheet, um, you know, where uh, the the Federal Reserve has been running off its balance sheet, you know, more or less with mortgages somewhere around seventy five billion dollars a month, um, sixty billion dollars of Treasuries, and then the mortgage portfolio. How do you see that developing in terms of, of Fed policy? And then how are you, at again, at Morgan Stanley, thinking about the balance sheet in relationship and, and quantitative tightening in relationship to the balance sheet and the financial sector? And I, I question that because, um, you know, Lori Logan, longtime person at, at the New York Fed, you know, she, she has a, an idea that there's a percentage of GDP that reserves, bank reserves need to be. Um, I take a different approach. I, I do everything from the bottom up and look at the financial sector and kind of demand for reserves by banks, um, which obviously is independent of the size of the economy, which is the reason I do it that way, because I think that there's it's a little bit different. But obviously, there's multiple ways to think about it, and there's ways that maybe the Fed will think about it. And given your seat and your experience um, uh, at, at the Fed, how do you think the Fed is thinking about it, and, and what do you think that they'll do in terms of balance sheet policy as they think about cutting rates and as we get toward uh, toward the end of, of the, uh, you know, I guess the more hawkish uh, cycle by the Fed? Yeah, uh, great set of questions and one of my favorite topics, which um, may reflect why I'm not invited to many parties. Anybody who gets excited about central bank accounting is to be looked at uh, askance. Uh, Will, uh, Will and I will invite you to our next party for sure, because <laughs> this is all we talk about, you know, probably three days a week. There's plenty of room at that party, so welcome to have it. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, so, look, what do, what do we know for sure from the Fed about what they're thinking? Way back in, I think, 2022, they laid out first principles for QT and then plans for QT. And so we know that they are planning at some point to start to, to, to slow the pace of QT. Um, and then with the December minutes, we got uh, the hint that that was going to happen, that discussion to discuss when the taper was going to happen soon. And then Chair Powell at the January meeting said they're going to jump into those discussions at some point pretty soon, presumably uh, at the March meeting. So the next step is almost surely going to be slowing of, of QT, but not ending. And I think that's an important part. The markets got into a bit of a swirl at the beginning of January when the December minutes came out because people thought the fact that they might be talking about talking about tapering QT uh, meant that the end of QT was nigh. And uh, I pushed back very, very strongly against that notion. Um, we still think the ultimate end of QT probably doesn't happen until the beginning of next year. So that's that's quite a ways off. Uh, so if the first step is to slow the pace uh, of QT, uh, what's going to drive that? 
I, you, you mentioned uh, Lori Logan in particular. I think she is uh, an important, critically important person to listen to. She's the president of the Dallas Fed now, but for most of her career was at the New York Fed. She ran the markets group there. Is more trend, uh, more 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 steeped in the details of, of market functioning than than the rest of the policymakers. Um, and one of the points that she's made is uh, slowing the pace of of QT can be very helpful for a variety of reasons, but most importantly, because it allows time for the market to figure out where that liquidity should go. And I think in that sense, it's actually consistent, Ira, with the way you were thinking about things from the bottoms up, where is that demand gonna go? And the short answer is, nobody has to think about it too much when there's like reserves everywhere. So we go back six months, a year, and, and there were reserves everywhere. No one, no, no bank treasurer really had to pay that much attention to it. Um, but at some point you do have to pay attention to it because the aggregate uh, amount goes down. Um, and it takes time for people to adjust their plans. And I think that's part of the logic that Lori and some of the other policymakers were espousing about slowing things down. So what could trigger that slowing? I think if we look at Lori's comments, if we look at Governor Waller, Chris Waller's comments, um, there's a lot of money in the reverse repo facility right now where money funds have put their cash at the Fed. And what those Fed officials have said is, as long as there's a lot of cash there that can come out of the Fed and into markets, then one doesn't have to worry as much about money market conditions, because if things in repo markets started to get tight, then there's sort of a safety valve, if you will, there's sort of a, a, a release mechanism. To me, that means we can more or less pin the slowdown in QT to when the reverse repo facility gets close to zero. So what we've written down, subject to lots of uncertainty, and I'm sure each of you knows how hard it is to try to forecast exactly where the Fed balance sheet is gonna go, but we've written down uh, somewhere in, in May, uh, the RFP facility will be in the 200 billion or so range. Uh, and that should be sufficient to make the Fed ready to slow the pace of QT. So we said at the May meeting, the Fed is likely to announce the parameters of this QT taper or slowdown. And then for the month of June is when it goes into effect. What does that look like? Cut the treasuries in half from 60 to 30 billion. Why, why 30? because it's smaller than 60. It's really hard to know. And my experience, so I spent 15 years at the Fed and these sorts of deliberations almost surely are gonna take two different FOMC meetings to fully get through and they're gonna have to work through these questions. I would say if we're wrong on the 30 billion, it's probably more likely that it's smaller, like 20 billion. Uh, and again, that's getting back to the justification that people like Lori Logan have, have given uh, about the reason to go slowly. Um, so if that starts in June, uh, then the question is, where where does it end? And like you, uh, my colleagues and I here at Morgan Stanley have tried to do a bit of a bottoms up view, thinking about where reserves as an asset class for banks fit into overall the overall asset structure for the banking sector. Uh, details that I'm sure you've worked through in different ways that we can leave leave aside for now for your listeners. But we've come up with a number of about 3.2 trillion dollars. We could easily be wrong, uh, but that's sort of the number that we're working with. And if you do that together with that slower pace, it's, that's how you get to the beginning of, of, of 2025. Um, what does it mean for markets? I think it means lots of things. Um, one, the market's clearly going to have to absorb uh, all of the paper that the Fed is shedding one way or the other. 
Um, but at this point, that's not a surprise to anyone. And so when I talk to my colleagues in interest rate strategy, when I talk to my colleagues in mortgage-backed security strategy, um, the view is a lot of that's already in the price. And it's also the case that unlike QE, when the Fed is going to the secondary market and buying securities and, and buying securities directly from the secondary market, the supply of treasuries getting back to the, to the market from QT is going through treasury auctions. So there's already a liquidity point for markets. There's already uh, a, a known auction schedule. People can look at what the treasury has to auction in order to fund itself, do that arithmetic. And so as a result, given how much is already known, the Morgan Stanley view is most of QT, if not all of it, is, is already in the price. Now, money markets could be a different thing and get back to all of the uncertainty that you're deeply familiar with about exactly uh, where the flows of money markets will be. We've got tax day coming up in, in mid-April, uh, exactly how much uh, funding any given bank is going to want, where the distribution of reserves will be. There could be bouts of uh, volatility in money markets. For me, one concern I have is the standing repo facility and whether or not it's going to be quite the panacea that I, I suspect some people are hoping it will be. It may well it may well be, but people have to be willing to use it. And uh, in some cases, you know, only a certain set of market participants have access to the revert to the standing repo facility. And if they're not willing to online because there's a moment of stress, because they're worried about their own balance sheet, you know, you could see some some volatility there. So one of the implications, I think, of, uh, you know, the smaller and and certainly longer time period of having uh, a smaller quantitative tightening is that uh, from a market perspective, it could actually help liquidity and off-the-run securities because obviously the Federal Reserve then will have more reinvestments that it will do of its maturing securities. So so I think from a, as a market strategist, one of the things that we have to consider is, you know, will that actually help liquidity and off the runs, getting some some dealer inventory hard to uh, hard to get rid of dealer inventory off the books and in the treasury market and the like. So I think that there are some interesting implications of a long period of time that say 20 or $30 billion of runoff instead of the 60, because that will change at least some market dynamics. That plus the treasury department talking about doing their own buyback program, the two of those things together. Um, should at the margin at least help uh, help liquidity a little bit in, in some of the harder to the trade off the run securities. Um, I think Will has a question, and then uh, then we'll jump back to me to clean things up. I definitely do. Uh, thank you for that, uh, Seth. You mentioned something there at the end that I thought was incredibly interesting, so I'll scrap my my initial question. But you mentioned the SRF may not be all that it's been hyped up to be uh, as far as its ability to to be a shock absorber. Can you dig into that a little bit and maybe answer something as simple as, if not the SRF, then who will serve as kind of the dealer or repo dealer of last resorts in a sense? Um, should we see repo volatility climb as the QT process continues and we approach LCLOR, which we very much agree is likely to be a, an early 2025 phenomenon? Yeah. So. Um... Just to make sure I frame it appropriately, there's massive uncertainty here. Uh, this magnitude of, of reduction of reserves uh, we haven't seen before. It's a much bigger drawdown in the total size of the Fed balance sheet than what happened with the last round or the first round of, of QT. Um, so can't say for sure. And and you know, part of my job is to make a baseline forecast, but another part of my job is to think about ways in which that baseline could be wrong and where the risks are. So very much in that second camp here of, of ways that things might go wrong. Uh, so one, one, one part of it is, will everyone, anyone in times of, of 
market strats be willing to come to the Fed and borrow. Uh, old people like me will remember 2003 when the Fed changed the discount window from being a below marketplace for banks, specifically the depository institution sub, to borrow from the Fed uh, against collateral. And that happened, but there was clearly viewed to be some stigma attached to that borrowing. If you're borrowing, the, the, the mindset went, there's probably something wrong. 2003, that was changed to the, to the uh, primary credit facility uh, that everyone inside the Fed still called the discount window. Um, and ostensibly, that was supposed to be a stigma-free facility. And it's not obvious. Uh, some of the studies that the Fed has, has done since then, it's not obvious that, um, that it, it fully got to that, that set of circumstances. Since then, we've seen you know, the financial crisis. Last year, we had uh, banks fail, and the Fed created the bank term funding uh, uh, program. Um, and so I think the, the question has to be in everyone's mind, will market participants be completely eager to, to tap the Fed as a source of funding, or will they have some hesitation because it might mark them uh, as, as uh, in, in some way? I think in addition to that, uh, it's primarily, it's mostly the primary dealers who have access to the standing repo facility. And so then if somebody who is not sort of a first order important client, uh, will any dealer, every dealer be willing to sort of step in, do the rehypothecation of the collateral and the extension of cash to the market for someone else in the market uh, if, if there's a funding need? And I think that's an open question too that, that we should be asking. I don't know that I have the answer to it, uh, but I think it's a question one needs to ask. So it's for the, those are the sorts of risks that I, that I have in mind. And then your last question, so if it doesn't work, who's there? Um, and I think that's very context specific. What we saw in September of 2019 was the Fed come in in pretty large size. You know, I suspect that, like I said, the Fed is looking at the standing repo facility as a pretty important tool here to offset the sorts of pressures. But, you know, it'll depend a lot on, is there still money in the reverse repo facility? In which case, my guess is the Fed would want that money to do the job first. If that facility has been entirely drained, then it's going to be a much harder judgment call for the Fed. Absolutely. And thank you very much for that context. I think that's an incredibly important discussion. Um, and I actually have a quick follow-up if you have a second. Um, do you think the issue with those or with such facilities such as the SRF or the discount window or primary credit, whatever iteration they name it, um, do you think it's a matter of terms of the facilities or optics? Because we did see uptake be relatively rapid with the BTFP last year. Um, and I, obviously that's relatively exogenous. Um, but there was a real appetite from the banking community to tap that facility if necessary. Um, the Fed's clearly signaled they would like counterparties to begin to flow towards the primary credit window uh, in times of stress. But given the differences we've seen in the receptivity of both, I'm guess, I guess I'm curious what you think is more of a driver of banks' ability to actually, or willingness, I should say, to tap those types of facilities. Yeah, I think I think you hit the nail exactly on the head with with willingness, and it's very state contingent, as nerdy economists like me like to say. Um, you know, um, if if there are lots of borrowers all at the same time, it's it's sort of easier to do it if other participants are there. And there have been times where you know in the past <clears throat> that's been the the case, right? For the 
TARP facility when when it was sort of very widespread and kind of directed from from policymakers. I think in those circumstances, if there's a core group of borrowers all at the same time, it definitely makes it a lot easier for people to sort of hide in the group, as it were, and not feel singled out. So, Seth, let's um, let's turn a little bit more, and we're going to stay in the U.S. here a little bit. But we have very large budget deficits. The uh, um, there's significant uh, government spending. There's a lot of auctions coming up. People, you know, I, I always joke around with, uh, with with Will or with my former associates that, you know, we, we looked at treasury auctions every single auction because they were boring until they're not. And now all of a sudden, you know, they've gotten a lot more attention than they used to. And, and in large part because of the uh, very large size of them, the treasury department just, uh, just two weeks ago announced that it was going to increase the size of coupon uh, auctions yet further, although it looks like maybe that'll uh, that'll be the last one for the better part of nine months or a year. Um, talk firstly a little bit about the uh, the debt dynamics that, um, that 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 you see in from Morgan Stanley uh, deficit forecasts and the like. And then secondarily, um, given your time at the Treasury Department, can you talk a little bit about um, you know how the decisions are made as to um, as to you know bills versus coupons and then which coupons and the like you know the interaction between the Treasury Department, the market participants, the Treasury Borrowing Advisory Committee and the like. And, and in particular, I, I, I only ask that because there has been this um, market narrative, you know, where some people have been suggesting that that the Treasury Department is trying to do stealth Q, QE via issuing more bills versus uh, <laughs> versus coupons, right? Which, you know, I would, it's true that, that that's very true, but that's also not, an, at least based on the history, not an unusual situation, right? The Treasury Department does tend to issue more T-bills when short-term interest rates are high. And then when, when interest rates go down, they tend to turn out the debt a little bit, which I think is something people don't realize. But anyway, so can you talk a little bit about, you know, behind the scenes, how, how those decisions are made? Sure, absolutely. And it, it's funny you mentioned uh, paying close attention to auctions. Um, the quarterly refundings, uh, a couple of them in the past couple of years have fallen on the same Wednesday as an FOMC meeting, and I have been struck that there are times when markets pay more attention to a Treasury refunding than to an FOMC meeting, which was not the case in my day. So when I when I got to uh, do the job of the Assistant Secretary for Financial Markets and do the 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 press conferences for the quarterly refunding. Uh, almost no one was paying attention. And if they were paying attention, the objective was to be as boring as possible. And if the videos of those are still available on the web, I think everyone would agree that I, I hit my mark by being boring during those refunding uh, uh, press conferences. Um, well, that's so, because they didn't, they didn't let me in the room at the time, so. <laughs> Excellent. Well, if I ever go back, we'll have to uh, change that and make sure you get you get in. Um, uh, so, so what happens? I mean, I, I think you, your take on it is very consistent with, with my experience. So the Treasury Department uh, has a specific set of objectives, what they're trying to optimize for. The Fed has a, a different one. The two groups, the two institutions talk to each other all the time. But my very strong conviction based on all of my experience while I was at each of the institutions and knowing the people in the chairs right now is that they talk all the time, but there is none of this stealth QE along the lines of what you said. What's the Treasury trying to do? They're trying to, they have to fund the government. They have to finance the deficit uh, through issuing debt. And so in that sense, the quantity that they're issuing is, is essentially out of their hands, modulo sort of picking what the level of the Treasury cash balance is at any point in time. But those fluctuations are really small compared to the 
uh, uh, trillions of dollars of, of debt outstanding. And so, you know, each quarter, uh, the decisions get made for the coupon auctions and then bills essentially come in as the filler for whatever needs uh, there are left after the coupon auctions are there. Um, and, and if there are any surprises between the quarters, then it's absolutely uh, filled in with, with, with bills. Um, <clears throat> so when I was there, one of the structures that I tried to put in place, and, and I, I sense a lot of that continues now, is to ask, where is the market paying relatively more? for treasury debt and where's the market uh, paying less or demanding a discount. And if you can be confident that those pricing differentials are gonna be very, very long lived and not flipping back and forth from week to week or month to month or even quarter to quarter, then at the margin, lean in a little bit to where the market's paying up and lean out a little bit from where the market's you know, demanding a bit of a discount, but by no means try to chase those returns because all that's going to do is add volatility to the market and reduce liquidity and ultimately make the treasury pay more. Um, and so I think in, in, in those circumstances, it's, it's broadly consistent with what you said about uh, the issuance between bills and coupons with just a, a slight extra layer of nuance. Um, we did hear from treasury that they increased the coupon auction sizes at the last refunding, but they're not likely to do it again. And I think that is a reflection of their forecast for their cash needs over time. I will say the Q1 and Q2 cash need forecast came in a bit below where my colleagues who do these forecasts here uh, were expecting. And so it, it makes sense that there wouldn't be any more coupon auction increases. And then to tie back to the earlier part of the conversation with QT, um, when ultimately the Fed slows the runoff of, of treasury securities, it just means there's that much less <clears throat> Uh, refunding that the Treasury is going to be forced to do to the market. And again, that sort of help, helps to argue that uh, they don't need to keep increasing coupon auction sizes to the market. So I think those are the, the key dynamics in place here. Where does this all go? I mean, the deficit is large by historical standards. The deficit is high by historical standards relative to GDP or on absolute terms. Um, it's probably, you know, uh, deficit to GDP may well have peaked in the near term, but we'll have to see. And that is all going to come down to politics and decision makings between the Congress on the one hand and, and, and the president. And you may not know this, so spoiler alert, there's an election in November. <laughs> and so, never never would have known <laughs> there you go so uh we really are going to have to see the outcome of that before we have any conviction over what's likely to happen next year and beyond but one pattern we have seen if you look at you know the um 96 to 2000 period into the early 2000s the deficit to gdp started to shrink we had fiscal consolidation we actually tipped over into a uh, budget surplus. And similarly from uh, 2012 to 2016, we saw fiscal consolidation as well. And we can argue lots of different ways about how effective uh, economic planning is, but there was also the fact of, you know, split government that restricted the ability to, to do lots of additional either spending or tax cuts against a, con uh, against a backdrop of a continued continued growth in the economy. So you get the deficit relative to GDP and you got consolidation from a little bit of both the numerator and the denominator. That's great. That has been Seth Carpenter. He is the chief global economist for Morgan Stanley. Seth, thanks very much for coming on Fit Focus. This was a lot of fun and I'm happy to do it anytime. Thanks again. And on behalf of Will Hoffman, I am Ira Jersey. If you have any ideas for questions or comments or any guests that you'd like to 
see us have on the program, please hit us up on the Bloomberg Terminal. Until next time, be well. <laughs>